And then you have this one tree all beer at the end. And it looked depressing. And I was like, that's me. And you know what? In a few weeks, it's going to be spring and those flowers are going to come out and it's going to be green and full of flowers. And that's me. I change. I have seasons. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. I'm your host, Sharon Moore, and I hope that you enjoy today's conversation and that the stories shared by our graduates impact, move, and inspire you. Please be aware that this episode references substance abuse. Please use your discretion. All right, Ezzy, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aaron. So, Ezzy, let's start with what brought you to the process? When did you take the process and what brought you to the process? What was going on in your life? Okay, so I took the process at the end of March of this year. What brought me to the process was I actually was introduced to the process and was recommended to go through the process a year prior. But like everything in my life, I try to uh, I try to get out of it and do things my way until I end up caving in. What happened was in my relationship with my wife, we were going through a lot in the year prior. And I had started seeing a therapist from when I started seeing him, started telling me about the Hoffman process. He himself had done it twice. I told him I wasn't as sick of him as him. I could probably only do it once and get my shit together. But um, I had a call with the office and sort of pushed things off and pushed things off. I finally signed up and the first date available was six months later, which I grabbed. Once I did the homework, which was like a month before, I fell into this deep, deep depression and anxiety. Um, which is very not like me because of everything that was coming up in my homework, which obviously went away once I entered the process. I guess it was a fear of what's going to be happening there and all this stuff coming up beforehand. But that's what what brought me to the process. Well, and, and, and if we have listeners who have not done the process, I think you bring up a really beautiful point, which is the process starts long before you get physically there. Sometimes it starts when you do your first page of your homework, but sometimes it starts when you're having that conversation or when you're researching it. There just is something that happens before and after as well. I'm curious, you said you, you waited a year and then you said that, that that's kind of common. What, what's that about? It's probably a mixture of fear. For me, it was a mixture of fear and it was a mixture of, I can do this on my own, which was a trend for me for a long time. You know, real men don't ask for help. Uh, We figure it out on our own. There were times in my relationship that my wife was recommending that I see a therapist and I kept pushing it off where it was sort of theme for me of, and we could get into it because it's a pattern that comes from my childhood of recognizing things in other people, but not in myself. When it's brought up to me, I sort of 
get standoffish. The criticism, even if it's constructive, I take it as me being a failure. So I put up that defense. I'll show you. I can fix it on my own. I never do fix it on my own. I might for a minute. I might for a month. How am I fixing something within myself that was created inside myself? I probably need some outside help. And so how did you transition from the pushing it off, the fear, the belief that, oh, real men don't ask for help, to finally getting to the point where it's like, okay, help me? So that's two things, I think. It's um, once I make a decision that I'm doing something, I'm all in. Which means like once I decided and once I came to the process, I was willing at that point to do anything. You know, throughout my life, I've had quite a few bottoms, let's call it. And when I'm at my bottom, when I'm getting help, I'm getting help. It's just to the point of me actually doing it. What happened for me was that year before, my wife had gone into a treatment center to get help for things that she was struggling with on her own and within our relationship it was a substance abuse treatment center. Now at that center, they had a family weekend where I had come to do family sessions separately and then together. Um, and it was in that weekend where there was this sort of light turned on for me of things that I was doing that were not okay. The guy that ran that weekend was really the first person in my life that was able to get to me. He was able to call me out on my bullshit and he was 100% right. He was able to open me up. It was such a powerful weekend to me that at the end of the weekend, I went up to him and I said, I want you to be my therapist. That was the individual that became my therapist and had recommended this process. I guess that's really when it started, but then I'm going to, I'm going to find any way to get out of anything. It was my natural self to just continue pushing it off, procrastinate until I finally made that decision, signed up. Once I'm in, I'm all in. All in. And so are you able to pinpoint one or two pivotal or magical moments while you're at the process? hundred percent. First of all, Sharon, the entire process was magical. It was magical to me. It's still, you know, it's not a long time, but it's still within me every day. I don't forget that process. I think about it at some point every single day. It was magical to me, number one, how so many different types of people coming from different parts of the world, had completely different upbringings, religions, ideas, are coming together in one environment and how close we get and how we're really so the same. And what I realized was, and it goes, I think, for me and possibly other people also in the world, is that when I'm with other people and when I'm interacting with other people, I could do one of two things. I could either compare myself to them or I can identify with them. 
And when I compare myself to another person or to other people, there's always differences. Of course, there, there are. We're different. But when I stop and when I identify with somebody else, no matter what that identification is, it brings us closer, it brings us together, and it makes me realize how alike I am to other people, and I'm not so different. Because my whole life, I thought I was different. I was different than my family. I was different than the people I was around. I was different than anyone. I missed something when it was given out to people. I missed it. I'm different. And so for me in the process, it was just this bonding with so many people that when you come in the first day, you think you'll never be able to bond with and how close you get. That was my experience. One of the moments that were extremely powerful to me and emotional to me was one day when we walked into the bar. Just by walking into it, it was very inviting and emotional for me. The shades were drawn. They were candles on. It was just a moment, a powerful moment for me coming into that room and sitting in it on, and everything that went on that morning in the room was extremely powerful to me. It was, it was a moment that really sticks out to me that I'll never forget I live with. I, I have a few children, but I have one son that, that hasn't spoken to me in many years. And a lot of it has to do with my past. You know, I'm not going to say I haven't harmed people. I've harmed a lot of people. I struggled for many years with addiction, and that brings along a lot of hurt. Like we learned in the process, hurt people hurt people. I've done a lot of that. My life is different today uh, for a long time already. But, you know, I've caused harm, and there are people that still don't forgive me. Part of that moment and the work we had to do was look at different parts of our life on the left road and on the right road. And doing that work, my right road life was where there was a point where my son, when my wife and I were getting older, my son had built on an extension on his house for us to live. I lived out the rest of my life with my son. The way it played out just was extremely powerful and was given to me through this process and the work that I had done in this process. And is that different than what your relationship is like with your son today? It's completely different. It's the opposite. It was very powerful to me. There was another experience which... I was outside. I did the process in Connecticut, and it was towards the end of winter. And I was outside, bundled up. It was cold outside. And I was noticing something very interesting. We had an exercise that we had to go outside for. And during this exercise, what I noticed was that the whole driveway, I guess it was, parking lot was lined with trees. They were these pine trees that stay green all year, tall trees. And it was surrounding that whole area. And then in the middle, 
of those trees, there was like a break in the trees and set back from it, there was another tree. And that tree was beer. It was the middle of the winter. There were no leaves on it. And I started counting the trees. The amount of trees that there were was exactly the amount of trees that are in my family. So my parents, my siblings, their spouses, and my grandparents from my mom's side and my dad's side. And then there was this one tree that was set back and beer, and that was me. It was empty. What I noticed was is that these trees were green and full of life, and it was the winter. I come from a family of perfectionism. Everything had to be perfect. In a way, I struggled with perfectionism also, but on the other hand, I totally threw that away. I had to be different. These pine trees that are always green are perfect. They always have to be green, no matter what the season is. And then you have this one tree all beer at the end, and it looked depressing. And I was like, that's me. And you know what? In a few weeks, it's going to be spring and those flowers are going to come out and it's going to be green and full of flowers. And that's me. I change. I have seasons. It was a moment for me to realize where I come from, who I am and what I'm doing. To me, I'm like a tree. I go through my seasons. Sometimes I'm beer and sometimes I'm full of flowers. That was a powerful experience for me as well to show me that I'm human. I go through emotions, I go through feelings, I go through change. I can change. I don't need to be so hard on myself. I don't need to be perfect. Even in the quadrinity check, I love it because to me, it's so not me. Just notice how your body's feeling. Don't try to change anything. Growing up, you have to change. You have to work hard on yourself. No, if something's feeling wrong, change it. No. I notice it. What season are you in at this moment? Uh, summer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean physically. I mean uh, metaphorically. Metaphorically, I'm in summer. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, I'm so grateful. I'm, first of all, I'm so humbled for this experience. And I'm, I'm just grateful. I'm in a, a healthy place overall. You know, since I did the process, my wife had done the process. And we have a whole different life together. There's zero chaos. There's zero chaos. There's events that happen that we learn how to go through together. We learned how to communicate together. Obviously, there's everyday life happens, but overall, it's such an amazing life. It really is. My wife and I have two daughters, eight years old and five years old. And after we did bath and pajamas, we said, you know what? We're going to the boardwalk. We live now for the summer a few blocks away from the boardwalk, and they have a Rita's Ices there. And we said, you know what, let's take the girls. And we took them, and after we were done, we ate Ices on the beach. Then we came home, and my wife and I both put our girls to sleep every night. We lay with them. We do uh, an exercise about the day, which my wife learned at Hoffman. As we were leaving the boardwalk, my daughter was like, let's skip to the car. And I started skipping with my girls. 
And that's something I would never, I'm so uptight. When we were laying in bed, my daughter turned to me. She calls me Tati for daddy. She said, Ta, you know, you're like a little kid. And I said, what? And then my other daughter said it. They both said, you're like a little kid. You skip with us. You play with us. Do you know what that meant for me? That my child could see me as a little kid? I was the opposite. I was always like structure. Play was non-existent. And for them to notice me playing with them and telling me I'm a little kid was, I wanted to cry. It was, it was exactly what I wanted to gain from this process and in my life that my child could tell me I'm like a little kid. I'm struck by, you know, a couple moments ago, you told us that you've overcome addiction. And then to imagine just a couple days ago, here you are with your kids reflecting back to you, the child in you, the playfulness in you. That's not easy to go from addiction to this. So I'm curious if you can walk us through your journey around that. I was the guy who had a couple of dollars left in his pocket and went to the store to buy my child diapers and had a decision to make because I needed to drink. Am I buying diapers for my two-year-old or am I buying a bottle? What kind of decision is that? It's not even a question. And I was the guy that my hand was reaching for the diapers, but somehow the bottle ended up in it. I'm leaving the store was so humiliating for me that I wouldn't even go home and I would disappear and I would go on what they call a run. So to hear that I can play with my children today and that I'm a little kid is, it's a completely different life. But that's not where it started. For me, it started as, as a kid. You know, I, I believe we all have, you know, we talk about it during our process, that's spiritual that spiritual self. And we all have that within us. And what I learned is that we all as human beings have a hole within us. And we need to fill that hole to be okay. We try filling that hole to make ourselves feel good. And what I learned in my experience was is that hole is a spiritual hole. It's a God-shaped hole. It's a spiritual hole. And only spirituality can fill that hole. And from a young child, I felt that something missing in me, that not fitting in. So for me, the addiction didn't start as an addiction. It started as medication, started as feeling good, feeling right. I always say for me, it was that it started off that I wanted to feel good. Then it led into I didn't want to feel at all. And then I needed to use just to feel just to be okay. I started getting high like a teenager, like most teenagers. You know, there's so many people that I got high with that, that it came time to stop and they stopped. But for me, it, you know, they say there's this invisible line 
between partying and addiction and that line, you obviously can't see it. So I don't know when I crossed it over, but once I cross over that line into addiction, there's no coming back. There's no coming back, no matter how much I want to, no matter how much I try to, there was no coming back. And I've had it, you know, periods in my life of, of being clean and sober and, and working on myself and trying. It didn't last. Every time I went back to it, it just got worse and worse. In this moment in your life, you've been sober for how long? I've been sober for um, coming up on 18 years in December. Wow. You know, I was talking to my wife the other day. I, I, I realized that I I'm sober today longer than I've used. Wow. This is huge. This is huge. It's unbelievable to me in the true sense of the word, not believable, how I can be sober this long and how I can stay sober. 18 years means you must have had some rough moments or some life challenges come along the way. How did you uh, navigate it? Tools. I know that once I experienced sobriety the way I experienced it, you know, because there were so many times where I would either question myself, am I really an alcoholic? Maybe I'm not. People would tell me, normal people don't question if they're an alcoholic or not. (laughs) Just doesn't happen. My sponsor once told me, he said, I would rather believe that I'm an alcoholic and die and find out that I wasn't than try to live my whole life convincing myself that I'm not one. And that stuck out to me because I see, unfortunately, people doing that. Experiencing life the way I experience it today, as opposed to the way I did experience it, I never want to go back there. And I'll do anything not to go back there. What I find amazing with you saying that is, you know, I never want to go back there and I'll never, and I'll do everything I can not to go back there. And yet in the physical realm, you are back in your childhood town, right? Where you live. Yeah. Not at the moment, but I go back there. Yes. Talk to me about that journey of you went full circle. You, it started there. It got probably pretty bad there. And then you came back as this version of you. Can you, can you walk us through that? Of course. So I, I grew up in a small town that was primarily Orthodox Jewish community, extremely Orthodox. I grew up without television. I grew up really in a bubble, um, not knowing anything about the outside world. I call it the outside world, the outside of that community. I grew up knowing only what I was taught. From a young age, it didn't sit right with me. Like, I didn't feel it. I didn't believe in it. Something didn't make sense to me. When I got to see what other people were doing outside the community, it just looked so attractive to me from six, seven years old, I was like, I don't want this life. I want that life. And when I was old enough, old enough was 12 years old for me, 13 years old. 
I was doing everything I can to experience a different life. I had dropped out of school before I graduated elementary school. So I, I didn't graduate elementary school. I didn't graduate high school. I lived a different life than the entire community. I started partying. I started leaving the religion. I started using drugs. And because it was such a small community, people knew. And everybody knew. They saw me. When I was about 19 years old, within this community, they created this board of members. This board had basically came and took Ezzy and chased him out of town and said, you can't be here. I had to leave the town. It was sort of like uh, gangsters forcing me out. There was nothing I could do as tough as I was. And because I was a tough kid, there was nothing I was able to do about it except leave. A lot has happened from the age of 19 years old till 27 years old, whether it was um, drug dealing, partying, homelessness, a lot of money, no money, just searching. I was just really a broken soul with nowhere to go. During that time, I, I had a lot of different experiences, whether it was um, being hospitalized, in treatment, out of treatment, married, divorced, business, no business, just a life of an addict. At the age of 27, when I got sober, I got sober and I was living in California at about four years sober. These members of that community that I grew up in had called me up. There was a, a 19-year-old boy from the community that had overdosed and died who I knew. He was in treatment with me when I was in treatment and then left, and he ended up overdosing and dying. And his family and a few community members had reached out to me and asked me if I can come back and open up a sober living in the community in his name, which I did. Went back to the community that I grew up in that had asked me to leave. I opened a sober living. I had opened an AA meeting in the police station, had given me a room that I can host an AA meeting in. And slowly coming back to that community, people had seen me before and people had seen me now. And slowly people started reaching out to me for help. It's amazing to me that, you know, for the past 18 years, I dedicate my life to helping people in the community. I've helped hundreds or thousands even people get help and, and get sober over these 18 years. And through this process and through this journey, I remember the first time one of the people that were on the board that had asked me to leave the, not, not asked me, they didn't ask me, it was, it was done pretty harshly, had called me if I can help them with a child of theirs. I looked at it in a way, like I laugh about it, I joke about it, but it was really a way of me giving back, of making an amends, keeping my side of the street clean, not trying to focus on what they did to me, but that. I can help. To me, that was the bigger as a, over these years, every single person on that board I've helped. 
and every rabbi, you know, they call me just today. A rabbi called me from that town for help for someone. It's beautiful how it comes around. Let me make sure I understood. In your childhood home, there was that board. They, not nicely, it sounds like, they kicked you out. You went through your journey, as you've spelled out earlier. You hit the bottoms, the highs are higher, the lows are lower, and then you got sober. And then you went back to your community, back to the childhood home. And now, since then, you have devoted your time and energy helping others that are facing addiction. Correct. <laughs> that is incredible. To me, it's, it's an honor. It really is. Where I go is, could the 20-year-old Ezzy imagine that this would be the Ezzy in this phase of life? The 20-year-old Ezzy didn't think he was going to be alive at 21. Yeah. I'm also curious, you said you were raised in an Orthodox community, and at that point, you just kind of, it didn't land and you didn't believe it. Now that you've had 18 years of sobriety, what role does religion play in your life? Religion plays a huge role in my life today. There were years that, you know, all those years that it played no part in my life. I had a very powerful spiritual experience a little while after I got sober. Sort of like what I talked about before with the quadrinity check. My whole life, it was, you can't do this, you can't do that. Everything was so strict and so rigid and so militant-like. And that doesn't work for me. It just makes me want to run away from that or fight it. When somebody tells me, just notice, it's okay. Or you did that, it's okay. Let's work through it, right? I can deal with that. So I was running away from that whole life of what religion was or what I was taught. When I was about one or two years sober, somebody had invited me someplace for a religious experience. And I said, uh, nope, you got the wrong guy. And he said, I promise you, come with me. It was in a different country. It was experiencing Rosh Hashanah in a different country in Ukraine. He said, I promise you, come with me. You don't have to be part of it. You don't have to do anything. Just show up with me. And I went with him. Those few days, I'm not going to say changed religion for me, but it woke me up to a whole new idea of religion that I had never experienced, which was a foundation. It was a building block for me to say, you know what? I want to know more. I had a very powerful experience with the idea of God and religion. And what it was is that part of religion, you know, part of life, part of spirituality forget religion for a second, is, is having a relationship with a higher power, a higher spiritual being. The way I looked at it was that I'm building a relationship here. When I have this idea of what that power is and I connect to it, so I looked at it sort of like when I'm a relationship with a person who I love so much, I want to spend as much time with that person as I can, right? But if I don't get 
to spend a, a time with that person. It's, I didn't do anything wrong. I just missed an opportunity. And that's the way I sort of looked at religion was I have opportunities throughout my day to connect or to do something religious or to connect with the religion. If I don't take that opportunity, it's a missed opportunity, which is not what I learned. What I learned was you're going to hell. You're a bad person. You're horrible. That's not what it was for me. It was I missed an opportunity and I'm going to try to grab the next one. And when I look at it like that, where it's opportunities that I have and connect to, I can vibe with that, you know, and that works for me. That was the building block. Still till today, I'm not, I'm not at all the way I grew up religious wise. I'm not like my family, but the relationship between us is powerful. It's one of connection mostly and acceptance. To me, this is exactly what I ever wished it could have been. Wow. You know, I, I see a thread here, both in that moment where you were asked to go open up a center back home, and here when you were asked to, hey, come, come explore this. It seems to me that you had two things. You were open and willing, which is huge, and you had choice. And you were open and willing, so you went and explored this. And then you chose to bring this into your life. 100%, which is all three things that I never had before. I was closed, I was unwilling, and I had no choice. And as a result, you've been able to have a relationship that feels right to you with the higher power. And you've been able to have a career, or even if it's not a career, you've been able to spend your time healing and helping hundreds of thousands of people, all because of those three things. Not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds, if not thousands. Powerful nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but again, it's that I keep saying both kind of, because I say open and willing is one thing, but you're right. It's three things, open, willing, and then choice. Huge. And I bet if we paused and thought about it, we'd probably find a lot of other mini crossroads in your life where it was the recipe of those three things that put you on, to use Hoffman terminology, the left road. Whew, Ezzy, I would love to keep talking to you. Why don't we stop there with this beautiful thread of those three things, the openness, the willingness, and the choice, and the good that has come out of those three things in your life so powerful. I, I really thank you for sharing this story, and I'm excited for it to fall on the ears of people who will be inspired and moved. Thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I, today I get invited. I used to be asked to leave, and now I'm getting invited. It's, it's beautiful. That puts a huge smile on my face. What, what a story of coming full circle and resilience and saying yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful. Ezzy, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be part of this family. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi. 
Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.